0: Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms, from the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries. Anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Baer, author of Machine, a White Space Novel, uh, published by Gallery, Saga Press. October 6, 2020. Uh she is a astounding award winner, a Hugo Award winner, Locus Award winner. And uh and also I'd like to touch on if we can on Safari and Relay and Carcosa with gun and camera. Uh published a Kindle story on, uh, in tour. Um so thank you for speaking with me.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me on.
0: So Machine, so it's a series. Um but how did um how did this, considering all the different things as a writer, you have, uh, you know, all kinds of ideas in your head. Um, tell me about how this series and then this, um, this, uh, book in the series came about.
1: Well, uh, it started in, in 2014. Mm Um, I had, uh, kind of been focusing on fantasy for a while rather than science fiction, uh, mostly for reasons of sales numbers and what the what the audience seemed to be there for mm-hmm. and uh, Simon Spanton, who uh, at that time was an editor at Glance, approached me and asked me if I had considered writing a, a space opera and I said, um, you know <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I I, I had uh, I had a few quite a few ideas saved up. I guess I should say because I think the the last science fiction novel length science fiction I had written before that was um, the Jacobs Letter books, mm-hmm. which were back in the the twenty ten or not the 2010s, the the, the actual two thousands mm-hmm. the Naughties.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so um so tell me about this uh, particular book in the series A Machine can you tell me about the protagonist setting and conflict what you focus on here
1: uh absolutely the the protagonist is a basically the the deep space equivalent of a a flight surgeon Mm um on a on a air ambulance um okay except she's a rescue specialist she's a doctor who's a rescue specialist in space Mm mhm and she and her crew are sent out on a mission uh, to approach what uh, they assume is a 400 year old derelict spaceship mm-hmm. um, and discover that the crew is in cryogenic suspension and that there's a, a modern spaceship that has docked with it that is whose crew is m- mysteriously incapacitated. Mm-hmm. And they then start attempting to find out what happened mm-hmm. and it's it's been an interesting book to to have out this year because of course i I finished it and handed it in last year sometime okay and having a a medical mystery with a uh, where they're trying to stop a pandemic from breaking <laughs> out, which is what what eventually turns out to be going on, Mm -hmm. um, come out in 2020 has been a little emotionally complicated. Mm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. There are are, uh, an equal number of, I I would say that mostly the reader response I have gotten is very positive. Uh, There have been a few people who have been very angry with me. Mm. Um, And I, you know, all I can do is attempt to explain that this is not an attempt to cash in on our current tragedy this is something that you know yeah. something that was written in 2018 um, yeah. obviously
0: yeah people have to remember that the, the whole process takes a, a year or more to get it out yeah. so you, yeah you didn't anticipate this happening so no um,
1: i really didn't
0: so but but with in, in that vein though if if say you had known this was coming or you know that this was a danger Um, you know, of a much more distinct danger that was likely, do you think there were parts of the book you might've changed or approached differently or, or you're, you're satisfied with how it is right now today?
1: I, I think, um, I am, I am because I did a lot of research in prior pandemics and epidemics, um, while writing the book. And I also, uh, back in the 1990s a million years ago when i was young and fresh faced and innocent i worked in the microbiology department of a major metropolitan hospital hmm. um doing uh procedure manuals and uh, you know general admin work um, hmm. so i do have and i come from a, a family my mother was a hospital administrator professional hmm. um so i do have a background in healthcare and i'm have always been very comfortable writing, you know, healthcare professionals as protagonists and as characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think I would have, like, I wouldn't write it any differently. I would, I would choose maybe to have it come out next year hmm. um, or last year, <laughs> Interesting. but uh, because I, I don't, I, I feel pretty confident in, in how I wrote the medical aspects of the book.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so would that so now that we're experiencing the pandemic, did that give you ideas for future novels? Anything that would discuss the current situation in sort of a fantastic or, or scientific science fiction
1: setting? well, it's it's interesting because now we've now that this has happened, of course it's it's part of history, mm-hmm. right? If we're writing if we're writing science fiction set in our world. It has to take the coronavirus pandemic into account right. as a thing that happened, much like, you know, just like the Cuban Missile Crisis or, um, and I do think we're going to be seeing a lot of very pandemic influenced stories in the next few years. I remember after nine eleven, which was right when I was breaking into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd been writing for years, but that's when I finally sort of hit the critical mass of being a decent enough writer to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there were a lot of stories that were obviously influenced by that particular national trauma. Right. You can't, you can't help processing your trauma through your art. It, it, it's, it's baked in, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, you can't stop being who you are. This is, this is why, I find it funny when people complain about art being political. Mm-hmm. Um, all art is political. It's just that when we agree with the politics, we don't notice it. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Right,
1: right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: do you think, we're kind of going a little bit off topic of the book, but this is interesting. Do you think now with the pandemic, do you think that makes that sort of makes earlier science fiction not not i'm not talking about your work necessarily but just everyone does it sort of make um other works dated like seem like they're part of a different world now if they, since they don't take this into account you know what i'm
2: saying
1: well it's it's interesting um it's one of the one of the things that i remember being sort of a, a talking point among historians as we were coming up to like 2017, 2018 mm. was how the um, the so-called Spanish influenza, uh, which it seems likely actually originated in Kansas, but mm. uh, <laughs> there's, <Yeah. laughs> there's a there's a lot of backstory there involving uh, Woodrow Wilson and and not so much freedom of the press during World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the it was that it was like the forgotten disaster. Mm-hmm. It had sort of been erased from national consciousness, and now, of course, we're all talking about it again because the parallels to our our current situation are so striking in mm-hmm. so many ways. Sure. But um, including, you know, uh, executive incompetence and uh, you know uh, people who think it's a hoax mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And so the the situation there is, you know, I wonder if in forty years we'll all have kind of scrubbed this out of our memory again. Mm-hmm. Um I, went, I you know, is it gonna be the sort of thing where when I was a kid in the in the seventies, people still talked about the polio epidemic in the fifties, but I don't remember hearing about um I heard about the Spanish flu because my grandfather my great grandfather got it and survived. Hmm. Okay. And I heard yeah i heard i heard that that was how I heard about that, but other than that, it wasn't part of the national consciousness hmm. so i don't I don't know i i you know i I feel like whatever trauma we're undergoing globally or nationally at any given time tends to take up so much of our attention and our, our it it is so personally relevant mm-hmm. that we tend to forget that there are going to be entire generations of people who won't have had this incredibly peculiar experience of doing almost everything remotely.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm speaking with Elizabeth Bear, author of Machine, and also On Safari and Relay, and Carcosa with Gun and Camera. You can find more information about her work at elizabethbear.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Well, we have a whole, we have a, a generation now. Um, in college who didn't experience 9-11. So, you know, to them, it's history. Um,
2: yeah.
0: Um, so, and in a sense, I, I don't want to say they're forgetting, but it doesn't have the impact. You know, you, as you live through history, you feel it and you feel where it's, where younger people just don't quite um connect in the same way. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. I, I remind myself, I'm going to be, Fifty next year. Um, mm-hmm. I remind myself constantly that 1980 is now as far away in time from us as 1940 was from 1980. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is a little painful to me, but it, it it allows me to to remember that you know, well, with in the era of Netflix, people actually will still get my Knight Rider jokes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: It, it's almost like you can almost see, you can almost say to people, you're repeating history again. I've seen, I've, I've literally seen this before, you know, and okay. you're doing it again. And, and yet people won't listen. Some people yeah. won't listen.
1: Some of what's going on now is very reminiscent of what went on during the HIV epidemic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, your, your safari i guess it's not quite a, a novelette or it's a novella or um...
1: it's a novel yeah a novelette mm-hmm. i think it's about ten thousand words i think
0: i think you've done you've done other works in this lovecraft uh sort of um universe ha- haven't you
1: yeah well i don't know if any of the lovecraftian stuff i've written is in the same universe mm-hmm. I, i've done a lot of either my first or my second professionally published story. I can't remember now which one it whether it was the first or the second one. Mm-hmm. Back in I think it must have been 2002 was a story called uh The Follow Me Lights, mm-hmm. which is also about Lovecraftian fish people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But from a, you know, also from a different different perspective. I think um because I was I encountered the the works of Lovecraft when I was in my teens Mm -hmm. and then later encountered his, shall we say, his more racist, Mm -hmm. uh, the more racist portions of his oeuvre Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, and came to understand what a, uh, what a dysfunctional and um, unwell person he was Mm -hmm. um, and how you know, again, we talk, uh, this takes us back to, you know, the trauma, um, trauma reappearing in, in the art, right? Right. His xenophobia and his, um, agoraphobia and you name it, it shows up in what he wrote. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, somebody or another in the depths of the internet recently proclaimed that, uh, that, and I can't remember who said this, I'm very sorry, whoever you were, uh, that, um, Lovecraft, the, the, the horror in Lovecraft is all about white men discovering they're not the center of the universe and going crazy. Hmm. And so it, it sort of seems really relevant to me right yeah. now.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Given the resurgence of white supremacism and, and, uh, you know, not just in the U S but sort of worldwide or at least Western civilization, quote unquote civilization wide, mm-hmm. uh,
0: I've actually asked this question of, of an academic who's written about his, uh, the history of horror, and and that's so. My question was, if horror is really is so attached to the fear of the unknown, is horror sort of a healthy, sort of a healthy um? <laughs> and, and I'm being I'm generalizing here. Is it sort of yeah. healthy um to to enjoy horror or get into horror if it's really just about expressing one's own xenophobia or fear of other, you know, unfair f- fear of, of others.
2: Um,
1: yeah. I, we're, we're seeing a real horror is not my specialty. I, mm-hmm. I am by no means a, a scholar of horror, mm-hmm. um, but it seems to me that we're seeing a real reinvention and reclamation of horror uh, tropes as seen through the eyes of marginalized people people and there's that kind of and obviously this is a a theme that has run through the genre for ages it's it's you know the basis of everything Shirley Jackson ever wrote basically Mm -hmm. is that ordinary people are terrifying and terrible Mm -hmm. and can behave in absolutely horrific ways Mm -hmm. and so I, I we are definitely like seeing that Sometimes, sometimes the stuff that is normalized is the real horror. Yeah, and I think that that's probably extremely healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it allows us. We we really are at a point where we need to take a, a hard look at you know culture and history and see how it is that we normalize things like death camps. Mm-hmm. You know how how it is that in a in a society anyone can um, people can accept horrible things happening to people who are not like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's a thing that as a genre, science fiction and fantasy and horror as, as a collection of allied genres, I guess mm-hmm. can be instrumental in revisiting and reexamining because there is so much, so much problematic stuff that is part of our legacy
0: and I, I enjoy horror. I don't want to say that it's not worth, um, writing, but, um, it's just a question I have, you know, exploring, like you yeah. say, the basis, the foundation of, of, um, of fictional writing. But, but, um, so, where did this safari story come from? Was that something, um, someone suggested you write something, an idea you had you just wanted to get out there? So the,
1: the, the funny story about this story is that I, I have, literally been working on it, uh, or I literally worked on it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I came up with the title and the, the first sentence, uh, in 1989, uh. <laughs> the, the summer before I started college. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I could, you know, I just, it wouldn't let me go. I kept pecking away from pecking away at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a, there's a, a, Richard Brodigan poem called the Amelia Earhart Pancake, um, which is in the internets if you Google it. But the text of the poem is basically, I've been looking for a poem to go with this title for 17 years and I'm giving up yeah. and the date. Um, well, I, was never, I never quite reached that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I knew there, I knew the story was there. I knew who the protagonist was, but like there were, I I needed, it turned out that I needed like the, the advancements of, you know, consumer DNA analysis. Um hmm. I needed, uh, I needed general awareness of global climate change. Like, I needed all of these things to come together to, to make the foundation for the story that I, that I had, because I had, I had had, like, the idea of this person who's a, a woman and a physicist and is kind of marginalized because she has a job in a traditionally male field and she's not conventionally attractive and so forth and so on and it mm. turns out that you know she's actually a uh related to you know the the quote-unquote decayed lovecraftian families mm. um and that like that was her conflict but i i could never get it all to come together into a piece mm-hmm. um but i knew i wanted the you know the lovecraftian bad guy to be the protagonist like i knew i wanted to take take, take that othering apart mm-hmm. and put, and that's also why the story is told in the first person, you yeah. know, it's, it's her narrating her own, her own experience. Mm-hmm. And sort of claiming her own identity. Okay.
0: Oh, I just wanted to double check. It's a It's, it's a Kindle book. Okay.
1: Yes. It's a Kindle book. It's also, um, it's also available on uh, the com website, uh, for free if you do not wish to, you know, pay the 99 cents or whatever it is to, to read it at your convenience on your e-reader. Hmm. Okay. It's edited by Ellen Dadlow, who it turned, who is also the person who bought that first, uh, fish people story of mine, um, 18 years ago. Now.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. And, and I, interview, yeah. uh, I've interviewed her and I have that posted. That's an earlier episode on this podcast. So. Oh,
1: that's fantastic. She's yeah. a fantastic editor.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It was a great conversation. Um, so, so you mentioned already some of the, the background you have in, in, um, in the medical sciences, was there any additional research you did for either the safari story or, um, or machine, um, for, for those, for those works?
1: Oh, I mean, tons. Mm -hmm. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction and a lot of, um, a lot of, you know, science magazines and mm-hmm. the, uh, I still think of them as magazines, although they're all like, you know, <laughs> in my e-reader now,
2: yeah.
1: um, but you know, popular science magazines because I've, and, um, scientific American and, and like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, you know, I I blame Carl Sagan for most of it because, uh, <laughs> I was the right, just the right age to become completely fascinated by Cosmos and all of his speculation about what life forms in wildly different environments might look like. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's, you know, uh, so that's a lot of getting to play with all the weird, weird ass aliens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The the people who think we're extremophiles, Mm -hmm. um, is, is great fun. And I also, uh, sort of like the, um, I, I mentioned in the afterwards, the book that the, uh, uh, core general is inspired by, oh, you know, it was a deep debt of gratitude to James White's sector general stories. Mm. Uh, and I also really wanted to, uh, which, which I love because they are space opera that doesn't involve either military empires or, you know, they're, they're not, it, it's non-military space opera mm. and, I would love to see more of that. It's, it's such a rare thing. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an underutilized, uh, underutilized set of tropes.
0: (laughs) Does, and I'll ask this tongue in cheek, does that even exist?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, um, well, I think, I think, uh, the white space books are Mm non-military science fiction. There's, there's some military stuff going on in the background, but our, you know, the protagonists are not military. Mm -hmm. Um, c j cherry does a lot of stuff with uh mercantile freighters mm-hmm. um the uh, or uh you know people people who are basically just trying to people in space living paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. um uh new martin's news series has uh is is diplomatic space opera mm-hmm. um, <laughs> there is there is military backstory but are you know the protagonists aren't shooting anybody except as an absolute last resort. Mm-hmm. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it does exist. It's just not super common.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I I like, I like my share of military sci-fi, but yeah, sometimes you just want to read about, you know, peaceful exploration and, you know, and um, investigation into something new without getting shot at or something trying to, some organized military trying to kill you or capture you for that reason.
1: Yeah. Or even just, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, space is hard. Um, yeah. (laughs) As as NASA likes to remind us. Yeah. And so I, I feel that there's a lot of adventures to be had that, um, you know, outside of the military hierarchy Mm -hmm. in space. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I'd say fantasy also has, it's, I feel like a lot of it is, you know, fighting and war and empires and kingdoms and all that and everyone's everyone's a warrior so and again it's fun but sometimes i'd like a little change so
2: yeah
0: so what are some of the things um that inspire your your work and that could be books music shows even games video games board games anything that sort of gets your imagination going
1: oh man that's that's Wow, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> because everything, you know, you never know. Often, what happens—it's on safari—is an extreme example. But I very often have like what I know is part of the idea for a story, and then I just sit around waiting for the other like three pieces to show up and mm-hmm. click with it. Travel is great. Mm-hmm. I read, I read a lot of nonfiction because i i find that i find that when i'm reading fiction what i i wind up getting caught up in the the narrative and the world building of that piece um and so sometimes i might write something reacting to it or arguing with it mm-hmm. like like the lovecraft stories but more often i find myself going oh what a cool idea when i like listen to a you know radio story on a street artist or um i'm trying to think of like some specific examples of things that just really clicked for me i'm reading uh peter pomerantsov's uh book on um uh media manipulation Hmm. uh right now and not only is that extremely enlightening about you know the 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 modern media environment, but it's also giving me a lot of ideas in terms of stories about how propaganda works. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Is there a particular say, well, that you find yourself going back to more often than, than others, either media or specific subject matter?
1: Um, I mean, I studied anthropology in school and Mm -hmm. the, the idea of, um, the, 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 basic tenets of, of, I say modern anthropology as if this wasn't, you know, Mm. (laughs) 30 years ago now, Uh. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) the, 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 you know, uh, the idea of uh, taking a a modernist and deconstructive approach to things and like looking layers and layers down, uh, which is an elaborate way of of saying what uh, Theodore Sturgeon said many years ago, um, you know, ask the next question. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really where, you know, the, the, where do you get your ideas? Just keep asking questions until you get to the thing that you don't understand and then write a story about the thing you don't understand. Mm-hmm. I think most of my stories are arguments with myself. Like, mm-hmm. um, often, often ethical or philosophical arguments with myself. Mm-hmm. If, if I know the if I know the answer to something, I don't feel any need to write a story about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And which side of you tends to win the arguments?
2: <laughs> it...
1: I'm I am uh, you know how uh, uh, people tend to accuse. Uh, the, I, I I think I have a lot in common with um, Barack Obama and the ACLU in that. <laughs> 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 uh, if I were a libra I'd claim I'm I'm a libra but uh <laughs> <laughs> I have I really have a tendency to, to um hold a lot of conflicting ideas in my head at the same time mm. and a a very good friend of mine described me once as cagey, So <laughs> 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 I I I really find it hard to commit to not mo- uh, to to an absolute course of action on most things. Um, I would be a terrible executive I'm
0: <laughs> though I was gonna ask, you know maybe maybe your approach is circumstantial, a circumstance based that when the time comes and the decision is to be made, you've looked at everything at the different angles and that maybe you're ready to just act immediately when the time is right
1: sometimes yeah i, I well, I think um somebody or another uh, there was some interesting research. A while back, um, and this is how like everything goes into my brain. Yes, I read this mm-hmm. thing once. I don't remember where or who said it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some interesting research a while back that suggested that one of the better ways to make a decision is to obtain as much information as possible mm-hmm. and then go with your gut, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know if that's actually what I do, but... You know, it's 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 it seems like a sound theory to me. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: As long as you can maintain an open mind while obtaining that information.
0: Right, right. I think that's the important thing. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Baer, author of Machine, and also On Safari and Relay, and Carcosa with Gun and Camera. You can find more information about her work at ElizabethBear.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Would you say, or what would you say, the if um, machine or the white space series in general had a soundtrack? What would you What would you say it would be?
1: Oh gosh, um, you know, I used to listen to a lot of music uh, while writing, mm-hmm. and I've, I've I've discovered that I can't do it anymore. I I my my focus suffers too much. I think I'm using. I, th- I think it's taking more processing power for me to write these <laughs> days. Mm. Um, but uh <laughs> I did I did write large chunks of machine um to the uh to the Wonder Woman uh score. Mm. So <laughs> mm. <laughs> movie movie music still works, I just can't listen to anything with lyrics in it. Right, right. So you could soup definitely uh superhero music is apparently.
2: <laughs> mm.
0: Okay is that sort of the aesthetic that the the series has sort of like a, a gradual rise to heroic um, action or it's not like a pulsing kind of fast beat? Well,
1: I mean, I, 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 hope so. Um, I intentionally said when my, uh, my first novel came out, um, somebody described it as Heinleinian and I didn't think it was particularly Heinleinian. Hmm. And there, there are ways in which what I was writing, Ancestral Night. I did, in fact, set out to write a sort of a Heinleinian novel. In that, it's got a first-person narrator. They spend an awful lot of time floating around in space on long, boring trips, philosophizing. Um, mm. yeah. <laughs> it's you know, there's there's uh, there's uh, sections of sarcastic banter. <laughs> um, so in so in some respect um i would i would say that the, uh, the 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 structural i mean machine is is definitely sort of a play in three acts it's got three structural narrative sections mm-hmm. um without too many spoilers there's you know like each each act takes place in a in a different different feeling space at least mm-hmm. For me, as the writer, um, okay. Machine is more straightforward in that respect. Okay. Um, they're also both both pretty long books by my standards. You know, not by anybody everybody's standards, but they're both um, were contracted at one hundred and fifty thousand words, and they came in right about there. Okay. Um, so there's there's a lot of room in there to sort of play around and go down little side trails and have, you know, give secondary characters some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't originally planned to write ancestral night with a, with a first person single narrator. I had originally intended to write a very different book. Okay. And uh, I was about, I don't know, I was three or four chapters into it when the um, 2016 election happened. And a lot of the character of, just sort of the vibe of the United States changed overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had to go back and, and like really retrench what I was writing to get something that I was in the correct headspace to write.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, let let me turn to, um, to how you do your writing. Um, is there anything out of the ordinary in your, in your view that you do to complete your drafts or, or the final, the final draft?
1: (laughs) Not really. I'm, I joke that there are, you know, <laughs> there are two kinds of writers. They're the ones who believe in false dichotomies and then there's everybody else. Because <laughs> um, people like to sort of plug themselves into camps as a pantser or a plotter. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And I'm not, I'm not by any means like a strict outliner, mm-hmm. but I also am not somebody who just kind of has no idea where I'm going. Mm -hmm. um often often i write the first third of a book kind of groping along um and then i have to go back and then i figure out what the ending is and then i have to go back and revise it so that it supports the middle of the book Mm -hmm. um uh so i'm very i do everything wrong uh (laughs) I, i don't follow any any of the advice on how to write um i don't uh let's see the you know the the never go back and edit before you finished a thing. I, I edit. I mean, the, the easiest way for me to write is to sit down, edit the previous day's work and then write today is because it gets me back into the headspace and the narrative flow. Mm. Um, you know, I totally, I revise paragraphs as I write them. I, I'm not a very linear thinker as you may have, uh, as you may have detected from mm. <laughs> from this, this conversation. Um, so Often when I write a paragraph down, everything's in the wrong order and I have to go back and fix it Mm -hmm. and like it, you know, put it in a sensible sequential order Mm -hmm. before I can write the next paragraph. Um, so that's probably the weirdest thing I do is I write stuff just any which way. Um, and if I have an idea for a scene that's going to happen, I jump, I'll jump ahead or I'll write. Bits of dialogue that I know are going to come later in the book, out of order. Um, and I, I, I tried, I tried using Scrivener, mm-hmm. um, and discovered that it was way too, way too linear for me, which seems weird for a product that's designed to let you move scenes around effortlessly. But mm-hmm. uh, so I just work in one giant, very ugly, word file. Mm-hmm. Um, which has all of my scraps and stuff and outline notes stuck at the end. And, you know, occasionally has a a bracket that says insert scene here when you figure out what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was, when I was earlier in my career, I would often write a scene without knowing what structural purpose purpose it served. Mm -hmm. Now I more frequently find that I know what structural purpose something needs to serve, but I haven't yet figured out what happens in it because I'm much pickier about what happens Hmm. In okay. my scenes. Okay. I, I've gotten all the low hanging fruit. And now I have to work harder.
0: Right. So, <laughs> so, so with this, for, for the machine, you said it, um, uh, it was supposed to come in at 150,000 words. I think you said that, um, yeah. did, did you overwrite it first and then edit it down or did you just hit the mark pretty much right I with am, the first draft?
1: I am a chronic Underwriter, I am the anti-Stephen King. <laughs> you know the Stephen King thing about um, the second draft is your first draft minus minus fifteen percent. I am the exact opposite. My second draft is my first draft with all of the transitions and exposition added. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> uh, I I I tend to uh, one of one of my editors constantly reminds me that I do not have a transparent head and. <laughs> explain things like character motivations and (laughs) backstory (laughs) Mm -hmm. because my attitude is "Oh, the reader will figure it out Mm -hmm. um and i think that's because i i read wildly inappropriate literature at a young age and i didn't understand half of it so i you know Mm. if i don't understand something i just assume that i'll figure it out later (laughs) interesting um but it turns out that many people find this approach frustrating, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. um, so so yeah, I have to go back and put in a whole bunch more exposition and and basically just all the all the stuff that all the stuff that I skim over when I read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't actually skim over it, but you, you know, it just um, the stuff that I know like in my bones that I have to go figure out how to verbalize it and put it into the second draft. So I think my first draft of both of them was probably about 130,000 words. Hmm. And so, and and they both, yeah, they both grew extensively on revision.
0: So did it take a beta reader reader or the editor to point out, Hey, this part needs a little bit more clarification or, you know,
1: my, my main editors on, on both books were, um, novel wolf and, uh, Jillian Redfern. Hmm. Um, and uh, they they both were really excelled at pointing out places where I was being unclear or ambiguous or where my joke wasn't as funny as I thought it was. <laughs> I, did, I did tell Nava that I would buy her an ice cream cone for every joke that she didn't get that I left in anyway.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I think I owe her like five ice cream cones. So. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen her because plague, um. uh,
2: uh, but
0: she's waiting for that ice cream.
1: She's lying in wait. Absolutely, <laughs> she earned it.
0: But that gives her an incentive to fi- to to pretend she didn't she didn't find jokes funny just to get more ice cream.
1: Oh, no. oh! See, you're much more <laughs> devious than I am.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. So so you mentioned one one approach to your writing that's changed over time. Um, are there others, anything significant as far as, and especially since you won awards for your first novel, um, how did that, did that impact how you wrote or did you just keep keep on?
1: You know, I, that's, you ask good questions.
2: Okay.
1: (laughs) I don't, I don't think that, I think that you have to, Okay. So, so, um, awards are fabulous. They're delightful. They are, they're concrete evidence that somebody really liked this thing that you put your heart and soul into, Mm -hmm. but, um, you can't get, you have to keep your eyes on your own paper and on the work you're doing currently, or you will drive yourself absolutely crazy. Mm Um, you know, you can't, because, because everything in this business is so arbitrary. Um, hmm. you can have absolutely stellar year in terms of sales and awards and whatever one year. And then next year, nothing crickets. Hmm. Um, and there's, and, and the, the writer has almost no control over that. Mm-hmm. Um, because no matter how much promotion you do or how much you put yourself out there or how much you get on Twitter and say, buy my book or how many events you do, what really always gets a reader to pick up a book is uh, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden, who's a publisher at Tor, mm-hmm. um, says that you know based on their market research, the number one reason that a person buys a book is because they've already read something else by that author and loved it. the number two reason that a person buys a book is because one of their friends shoved it under their nose and said, dude, you got to read this. Hmm. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's not his, that's not his phrasing. He doesn't, he doesn't sound like a, it doesn't generally sound like a super dude. Um, But you know, and and I certainly know that I have bought any number of books because a friend shoved them under my nose and said, dude, you got to read this. Hmm. Like that's, and, and you can't, you can't buy that. You can't, it's, it's entirely got to be, so you, as in order to maintain my sanity, I have Mm -hmm. really tried to divorce my sense of self-worth from those external metrics. Mm -hmm. Um, they're, they're lovely. They're extremely gratifying. I certainly, you know, when I'm having a crappy day and I can't seem to find the right adjective and I'm like I will never finish this book. Um, I I have been known to go into the other room and look at my Hugo Awards. <laughs> it's been known to happen. Yeah. You're like, look, you did it before, okay? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs>
1: but, hey. um, but it's also just not so, so they're lovely um, but you can't let them control your output. I Mm -hmm. guess you can't write to the award. You can't write you can't write to the market because the market's going to have moved on in a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I I got very lucky with um, the white space books and I actually got a little lucky that um, I wound up because of a bunch of family health stuff and various other crises that are boring. Um, I had to get an extension on the first one and it wound up coming out in uh, 2019 rather than 2016 when it was originally supposed to come out. Mm. Um, also because I had to go back and start over. Uh, and because in that interim space, um, and became an absolute phenomenon and suddenly space opera by women was the thing, Mm -hmm. you know? So, (laughs) um, so that commercially speaking, that delay worked out for me. Mm -hmm. Um, on the other hand you know but you can't you can't predict that right yeah there's no there's no way to control that so you just kind of surf it when it happens and and when it doesn't you remember that the world is arbitrary and unfair
2: Mm mm-hmm
0: yeah yeah. which is what (laughs) which I think is what writing fiction always is is, well it's not always saying that but I guess in the end the hero always yeah I'm not even going to go down that road
1: now, unless you're writing modernist literature yes yeah. <laughs> if you're, if you're Samuel Beckett, things might be a little different,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you mentioned some of the the work you've done um non writing work that you've done uh, that's influenced how and what you write you know the medical the medical work is there is there other stuff that's impacted your work
1: uh oh, I mean everything everything does like the 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 family you grow up in the culture you grow up in. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the places you live. Um, I wrote a book about Las Vegas because I lived in Las Vegas for six years, six Mm. and a half years. Mm. Um, So you like every experience you have somehow gets baked into what you write. Um, I write a a lot of things set in New England because I know New England very well. Mm. Um, I grew up here, you know, (laughs) so it's it's Mm. effortlessly for me to write. New Englanders behaving like New Englanders. I don't have to think about it. Hmm. Uh, yeah. um, it really is like a Stephen King novel. <laughs> my, my husband is from Minnesota um, and moved out here to Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And uh, the like after the first winter in this big weird old house with our, um, you know, just like he's like everybody in this town is out of a Stephen King novel. I thought he had an imagination. It turns out he's just a realist. I'm like, <laughs> you're not wrong. Mm. I used to describe it as, you know, like living in an episode of New Heart, but nobody remembers what New Heart was anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah. because it was 40 years ago.
0: <laughs> New Heart, yeah, that was a funny show. Yeah. yeah. I'll say it's that,
1: accurate. Completely accurate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll say I never really... I always enjoyed ghost stories and stuff, but I never really believed in ghosts until I, I spent an evening in a main, um, bed and breakfast, an old historic bed and breakfast. And, and that kind of, um, had an effect. I'll say that. Yeah. That's, um, <laughs> and again, I'm a scientific kind of guy, you know, you know, but, um, yeah, there's, there's some weird things out there. So of all the places you've lived um and maybe this is unfair to ask wh- which which had the uh, which has had the most um atmosphere or the most sort of um hidden hidden worlds within it that you found most
1: fascinating oh wow that is that is hard cuz there's always like the the of course when you you know the place you where you live when you're in middle school and high school there are all of those you know, kid legends mm-hmm. like these woods are haunted or, you know, somebody died in that sewer tunnel or whatever. And of course it's all absolute nonsense because somebody's older brother was dragging them back in 1962 and it's gotten passed down mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, every, through every high school class since. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it- the, the place where I live now has an awful lot of history. Mm-hmm. Um, Vegas was interesting because, and the the, the book that I, I wrote about, you know, sort of the, the, the mystic history of Las Vegas, um, takes this into account. Vegas is interesting because they, everything gets plowed under after 10 years, mm-hmm. you know, like the life cycle of a, of a Vegas casino is new hotness, you know, Mm-hmm. Not so new, not you know, <laughs> new, new hotness. Uh, Bash of the strip, kind of seedy and rundown. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hollywood set for a movie implosion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's that's how it works. And uh, <laughs> so, so that 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 very transience is so baked into the place mm-hmm. that it becomes like part of its part of its zeitgeist, part of its um. Uh, you know, like nothing is nothing is real. Everything is phantasmal and ephemeral, and will be gone again in if not this year, next year. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually had to set the novel in a very specific year and make it apparent in the like in the text hmm. what you know what times what time frames it's set in. It's called One-Eyed Jack. Um, okay. And, uh, but it's, it takes place in, in the 1960s and in 2002, uh, sort of, well, and so, because if you describe a building, it might not be there next year, you know?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think that was like, for that reason, that was the the setting that had the most effect on my writing, um, Mm. of my actual crafting of the book when I wrote. The Stratford Man, which is an Elizabethan fantasy, I went to, as, as part of my research for it, I went to England, which was my first time in my life traveling overseas. Hmm. And I, I, like, went to all the places in the book. And, of course, you know, 400 years has gone by. But uh, I still felt like I could get a sense of, like, the quality of the light and the landscape and the way things sounded and felt. And that was really important to me in making, making that book feel as, as textured and alive as I wanted it to. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Cool. So, um, bit of a whimsical question now. Um, when you were younger, was there a power technology or fictional setting you wanted or that you yearned to be part of?
1: Oh, is this the what superhero would you be question?
0: Sort of, <laughs> but it's a little broader than that.
1: Well, I mean, I I used to. So I read uh, uh, Anne McCaffrey's Pern novels when I was quite young. Mm-hmm. So, you mean know, about reading adult literature at an inappropriately young age. <laughs> uh, and I I had I desperately wanted to be a dragon rider. So mm-hmm. that was like the thing I wanted. That was that was my life goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that there's no clear career path for a dragon rider. <laughs> In, <laughs> You know, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, America. So that that got put by the wayside. Hmm. Um Was
0: was there someone telling you that yes, there was a chance? Someone sort of playing with your, your young mind?
1: Oh no. No, I was I was I was probably eight or nine years old, so I was a little I I, I, I had a sense that dragons weren't actually real. <laughs> um and that you know space exploration wasn't real sadly although I got uh, somebody gave me one of those uh, coffee table books of of Chris Foss illustrations of derelict spaceships Mm -hmm. and I think those have entirely entirely created my spaceship aesthetic Mm -hmm. Um, I I keep writing about these giant derelict hulks floating in space and it's all Chris Foss's fault Mm -hmm. all of it
0: (laughs) yeah I think I know that uh, it if if I'm visual, if my memory is correct, I think I know who you're talking about, and I like that that stuff a lot as well.
1: Yeah, oh. I think I think a lot of it was in Omni too back in the day. Oh yeah, but yeah, like that aesthetic is so that that and Thunder the Barbarian like, like growing up in the '80s gives you such a post apocalyptic aesthetic. Yeah, just ever everything everything was tattered. Yeah, it's probably overused. Word in my work is tattered.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just looked up Chris Foss. It is the same art, and yeah, Omni, Omni magazine. Again, that's a magazine that um, that I read when I was young, and maybe it was a little bit older than 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 I should have been reading in in some aspects, but um,
1: but nobody stopped
0: us. No, and we
1: okay. <laughs>
0: I mean, if Ish. you're, if your kid is, is reading, you know, and just engrossed in something, what are you, are you going to say, take that away? You know, and it's.
1: Yeah. No, I just, just let them, they'll, they'll sort it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a feeling. Well, you, your parents sound like they were more scientific, but I think some parents see like sci-fi and fantasy and they're just like, okay, I don't get this. At least back in the day, you know. Yeah. And they're like,
1: i I'm a third generation science fiction fan I'm on both sides of the family. So yeah. I basically got, I got the run of my mom's library, which may not have been the wisest decision on her part, but <laughs> i am not terribly trauma. I'm far more tra- traumatized by other things. <laughs>
2: hmm. Okay. Uh,
1: but yeah, my, uh, one of my grandfathers was, a, a Asimov and Clark fan. And the other one liked Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, the guy who wrote the, um, the destroyer books. He had all of those.
0: So did you have access to like any of the original pulp fiction magazines or the original uh, books that were published like back?
1: Uh, back? Yeah, I had, my mom had a whole bunch of, uh, of Damon Knights, um, orbit anthologies and like the, the really old years bests. And I think she must've gotten those from her father. Cause that wasn't, well, some of it might've been her stuff. Um, but she was more in the the Ursula Le Guin, CJ Cherry, like that was her mm-hmm. her real niche as as a as a reader, as a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh and so yeah, I read I read a lot of the older stuff as a kid. I also read like she really liked the new wave, so I mm-hmm. read an awful lot of new wave and then kind of discovered cyberpunk on my own. In high school, and as I was getting into college, and I, I, I had a really weird relationship with books as a kid. Like I didn't realize they had chronology. Mm-hmm. You know, they they were just sort of a natural resource that existed. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, I, I think I see. I was,
1: yeah, I was probably. I think I was. I was. I was probably in my early teens by the time I realized that more books in a series would come out because it was you know there would be new ones Hmm. (laughs) it was probably like i I don't know like a preteen not you know Mm
2: -hmm.
1: not that books weren't sort of a natural resource that had to be mined that they were a thing that got made Mm -hmm. and that the people who made them weren't People from the dim mists of history, but <laughs> quite possibly people alive and working today. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah.
0: So, did you play any role playing games?
1: Oh yeah, I I was um, uh, in in sixth grade. I think I had the Red Box uh, Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. set, um, and I I was kind of nerdy and unpopular um, and also a girl so I didn't really have anybody to play with. Oh. But but I I memorized all the rules and I made up characters and I did like all of that stuff. (laughs) Built dungeons. Mm -hmm. Um, But then in high school I fell in with a a gaming group Um, Mm -hmm. and we played a lot of what did we play? We played uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons which would have been the first edition in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, And... We played a certain amount of Marvel superheroes mm-hmm. and, uh, then in, in college, um, oh, and, and, uh, Call of Cthulhu also, oh, uh, yeah. and then in college we sort of, I, I clicked in with a, a gaming group at the University of Connecticut, um, many of whom I am still friends with today. Oh, okay. cool. <laughs> uh, so. That was that was actually really good for me because I went from being you know like the only girl gamer I knew to being part of a group that was probably sixty percent female. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, which was really really great for me socially. Mm-hmm. Um, my female nerd friends before that had been like Trekkies and so forth. You there is nothing wrong with Trekkies. <laughs> I strongly identify. Okay, <laughs> Just, <laughs> but they weren't gamers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I dabbled in—I um, don't know if you—Villains uh, and Vigilantes, Boot Hill, um, James
2: Bond.
1: I played a tiny bit of Villains and Vigilantes. Uh, one of the guys um, who ran a bunch of games in when uh, in the the larger group I hung around with in in college uh, ran a lot of V and V because I was person who was running a lot of call of cthulhu i wound up not playing in a lot of other games because you know how it is the game masters never get to play yeah
0: yeah <laughs> you just get to torture everyone
1: you just get to torture everyone else yeah <laughs> um,
0: so,
1: but we were all sort of working out of the same player pool and occasionally played in each other's games
0: Hmm. that's cool yeah you don't still play do you or did you
1: currently i have a once a month pathfinder game oh, okay. um which is uh uh cur- it is taking place over discord <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> for okay. the time being right. um but uh, which it turns out works surprisingly well uh as a as a tabletop rpg platform hmm. um i uh i have been i haven't run anything in a while um because i discovered that i can either write or come up with scenarios hmm it uses the same part of my brain and I can't switch back and forth on the fly. Ah. But I think a lot of the ways that I plot books is very similar to how I plot games and that I create an interesting situation and then I drop a lot of characters into it and I see what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that I'm playing all of the characters instead of just half of them.
0: Right, right.
1: So that, yeah. but that was, and, and so, I can't. I can't seem to run a game effectively while I'm writing. Uh, but I still still play. Still, I've done a couple of exhibition games um, mm-hmm. for uh, for Pathfinder and so forth.
0: And what, what character class do you prefer? You know,
1: Uh I so right now I'm playing a, a sorcerer, mm-hmm. uh, a draconian sorcerer. She's she's a lot of fun because she's not not very good at this human social interaction thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so mostly I hang around in the background of the party, wait for a fight and freeze things.
2: Oh, okay. um, <laughs> hey, that's my job. Yeah.
1: Uh, but, uh, I, I, I like, I'm, I'm the weirdo who likes playing combat clerics. Uh, I, I hmm. find that very rewarding because there's always something you can do like in almost any situation, <laughs> uh, and I also, you know, I like a good thug. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, okay. I like a good thug. It's 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 not it's nothing nothing wrong with tanking a little and hitting things.
0: <laughs> um. So
1: my my just the rogue in the in the household. He he likes uh, he likes playing assassins and thieves and so forth.
0: Who is? I'm, I miss it.
1: Oh, my my husband. Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: He likes the, Okay, yeah, the assassins and Rose—the ones um, yep. stealing from fe- fellow party members, though.
1: <laughs> I have I have not yet seen him doing that, doing that. And currently, he's playing a, a noble ranger.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, so. okay. So, just to get back to the book now, did you have? So you mentioned some of what it took to finish it. Do you have any other difficulties um, getting it finished or published?
1: Uh, well, published wasn't hard, um, right. because I, you know, was writing it, um, because I sold it on, uh, on a proposal. Right. Uh, I say it wasn't hard, you know, obviously selling anything is hard, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> um, and, and I've been, you know, I've been doing this, my first novel came out in, at the end of 2004, mm-hmm. um late enough that it was technically considered a 2005 book and yeah. I still get rejected all the time. You know, wow. um, it's, it's a thing. It's just, it never goes away. Um, mm. which is another reason not to worry too much about what everybody else is doing, but just to like focus on your own work. because mm-hmm. uh, you only see the, it, what is it? You only see everybody else's highlights reel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, the, the, it was just I think the hardest part for me was that I kept I I I had a real problem with this book that I don't usually have of I had I had three interlocking plot threads that were all supposed to weave together and come to a satisfying conclusion and I was kind of um I was modeling my uh, plot structure on um kind of a, an agatha christie thing you know there's a there's a hmm. there's a, a mystery and a solution to a mystery and a and a somewhat elaborate scheme <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, an, an unreasonably unreasonably elaborate scheme but hey this <laughs> is fiction um mm-hmm. you can't have a good caper without you know uh, uh without breaking a few eggs <laughs> um so I, I was definitely thinking of like the, the the agatha christie plot structure where there's a lot of people with different motivations doing different things and it all kind of, and they all get in each other's way and uh, cause problems for each other. And I realized like halfway through the book that I had one too many.
2: Hmm.
1: And so I had to go back and unperson a secondary character and take out an entire plot thread and uh, just rip that whole thing out because it was, just because it's in the outline doesn't mean it has to be in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was clutter. It was clutter, and it had to go. Hmm, okay. It's sad because I liked that character, but you know yeah. what? I I uh, I rolled their folded their plot role their their plot roll into another character, and thereby had uh, a much stronger had had one stronger secondary character as opposed to two that weren't doing very much work.
0: Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. So, what's your um current writing project?
1: I am currently uh somewhat overdue oh. <laughs> uh see see above global pandemic ah. somewhat distract on uh on the third book in the Lotus Kingdoms trilogy. Mhm. Uh, which is called The Origin of Storms, and which was supposed to be handed in in June. And uh, for some reason, it did not get handed in at the end of June. (laughs) Mm. But uh, I I am hopeful that I will have it done by the end of the year or January at the latest. Um, And I feel kind of bad about it because my editor is retiring, and she can't actually completely retire until I hand this damn book in. (laughs) Oh boy! <laughs> which is which is why we try not to be too late on things because you know it's the the problem with the publishing industry is that the the entire thing like hangs on so many one person linchpins. Ah. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 writer's got to get their job done, and the cover artist has to get their job done, and the editor has to get their job done, and uh, what is what is and any one of us can be der- derailed by you know mom's in the hospital or Mm. getting a divorce or Mm. any of the other or retiring or any of the other million things that happen in a, in a average person's life to throw you for a loop for a year. Yeah. Um, and so it's, so I, I, I'm feeling a lot of emotional pressure to get this dreaded thing done. (laughs) I see. I see. Because Hmm. a lot of people, I'm, I'm annoying a lot of people by being late.
0: Yeah. Hmm. So where can people find you online, social media or website?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm easy to find online because I'm Elizabeth com. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are links to Twitter and my newsletter, um, and so forth and so on. Okay. Right at the top of the page. <laughs>
0: okay. And just, and that's bear is in B E A R Elizabeth com. Bear, bear, yes.
1: Bear, bear like the animal.
0: Got it. Okay. All right, cool. So um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words?
1: I just really, really enjoyed this interview, and I'm uh, grateful to have gotten the chance to talk to you. This has been a delight.
0: Oh, yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. I totally appreciate it. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern-day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again and keep imagining the past, the present, and
2: the future.